When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another edition of Children of Song, the podcast that explores what it must have been like to grow up surrounded by music. For those of us who might be taking this journey with us for the first time, we're speaking with artists for whom making music is as natural as breathing. Some of them are the sons and daughters of music stars. Some of them grew up in homes surrounded by family music makers. Some of them began making music when they were so young that they can hardly remember a time when music wasn't in their lives. But all of them are children of song. I'm your host, Robert K. Orman, and I'm joined by my producer, Brad Newman. Welcome back to Nashville, Brad. Oh, thank you, Robert. You know what it's uh, exciting today is because uh, our, our guest today, I would say, in some ways, is sort of the patron saint of, of, of kids who aren't of the wealthy set. You know, I, I, was, uh, I was, you know, listen, I was a lower middle class kid raised by a single mother, and I, I think... You know, some of those kids, I know he really represents the homeless kids, but I think kids that are a little underprivileged and need someone to look up to and have their back. So I'm excited about today. It's Jimmy Wayne. He's a country star you know from hits like Stay Gone, I Love You This Much, Paper Angels, and Do You Believe Me Now? And I'm so glad you spent the time for us, Jimmy. Welcome. Thank you so much (laughs) for having me. I remember the first time I encountered you we I was hosting a show at the Ryman and you were very early in your career might have been your first record and it was a fan club show and what struck me the most was how even that early how enthusiastically the fans had embraced you and your story did they just get you right away um during my first uh, record I think the song um stay gone they connected with that song, mm-hmm. which inevitably they connected with me um, through that song. And um, it was a very real song, uh, is a very real song. And um, I just, I remember that event very well. I, I think I was playing a show with Keith Urban. Mm-hmm. He, he was, was on that show. He was yeah. actually headlining it. Mm-hmm. And um, man, I was so green. <laughs> you were brand new. I was brand new. <laughs> I was so nervous, and I was really nervous when Keith came up to me afterwards and said, "I was listening to you on the overhead speaker in my dressing room," and I was like, "Oh gosh," because <laughs> he is such an amazing guitar player. But he did, um, did he, "Stay Gone" come from the fact that your father left you when you when you were just so young? No, actually, "Stay Gone" was inspired by a conversation that my sister and I had. Um, she and I. You know, we grew up in the foster care system together, but we were split up when I was 13 and she was 14. And it was during a time when my mom had gotten out of prison and um, she signed uh, marital rights over to an older man who lived in the trailer park. And um, he married my sister at 14. And um, he abused her for 13 years mentally and physically. And um, I didn't know it was happening. I, I, I knew he was not a, a a nice fella, but he never thought he was hitting on her. And um, one day he uh, she called me and she says, "I need to leave." And I just knew I, I just knew I needed to, something was wrong. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the first time I flew on a plane. I, I, I don't know how I did it, but I managed to get on a plane and flew to uh, my hometown, rented a car, drove straight to their trailer. It was sitting out in the woods on some red dirt, and I just walked in. I didn't knock. I took her by the hand, walked her out, and he stood behind us with a gun and said, um, she's not going anywhere. And I, I, I just took her. And I said, she's going. So she grabbed her marble bag and filled with clothes. And um, off you went. Off we went. And she said, he, uh, he's found out where I live and wants me to come back. And I was like, because I was already back in Nashville. And uh, she said, I said, well, sis, is there anything I can do? Because I had just gotten a record deal. I didn't want to lose my record deal for going home and, you know, getting in trouble with this guy. Um, but she said, I'd be okay if he'd just stay gone. And there they came the song. That was it. I found peace of mind I'm feeling good again I'm on the other side Back among the living Ain't a cloud in the sky All my tears have been cried And I can finally say Baby, baby, stay Stay right where you are I like it this way mm-hmm. It's good for my heart I haven't felt like this And God knows how long I know everything's gonna be okay If you just stay gone It makes it so much deeper with that backstory with it, man. I had no idea. Yeah. You know, um, during the success of that song, it was going up the charts. It went to number three, stayed there for three weeks, and um, I was on a radio tour nonstop for 10 months. It was, a, it was I wore out a black pair of pointy-toed cowboy boots. <laughs> and I'll never forget standing in the airport in California, and I said to the regional, I was like, I need some tape. He's like, what for? I was like, my boots are falling apart. The bottom of them are already falling off. And I had worn out a brand new pair of boots on this radio tour. That's how much I walked. And um, someone said to me, like, you know, I kept hearing about this song on the radio. And I was getting so much fan response. And and uh, the bus driver, when I eventually started touring, mm-hmm. um I got on the bus, and the first thing he says, that that song, man, I tell you where I was when I heard it. And, and I remember standing in the doorway of that bus looking at him behind that big wheel on the steering wheel, and I thought to myself, wow, I don't have any stories because I have been working nonstop. And the success of that song, I don't remember anything from that song other than just working and doing a radio tour. And everybody else has got all these stories about where they were and you know, how it right. affected them and everything. I was just, I was working. It for, launched trying to, you. Yeah, it, it launched, launched me. You. It takes a lot of work. It does. Yeah. How old were you when your dad left the family? Um, he was, he didn't even show up at the hospital. Oh, so mean, when you were born, yeah, he was gone? He, was, he never showed up. He was a, my mom, um, 
um, she, she, um, you know, obviously got pregnant by him and then he, uh, he just kind of abandoned, abandoned both of us, my mom and, and me and never did show up. Do you think in some ways that I love you this much is kind of like a wish fulfillment kind of a thing? Absolutely. You know, there was a, um, there was a lot of times I wondered where he was. Um, I knew about him and, and had met him actually when I was nine years old, um, was in the backseat of a car heading down second street in Kings mountain, North Carolina. And my mom's driving and she said, Jimmy, there's your daddy. <laughs> and I first time I'd ever heard those words and, and I scooted up to the edge of the back seat and looked out the window and I saw this man swinging, sitting on a porch swing with his arms stretched out on the back of the swing. And he, he was a very clean cut guy. He, he still is. And he, he had, um, a white t-shirt on it was tucked and had denim pants on jeans and his hair was combed like james dean it was a really <laughs> cool cool guy <laughs> and um he uh he liked motorcycles and convertibles that's that was who he was and we parked in our driveway about two blocks from him and i jumped out and i ran down to where he was sitting on that porch swing and i was out of breath because i was running so hard um i got up on the porch and I was like, my mama says you my daddy. <laughs> uh -oh. And he stopped and looked at me as, you know, he gave me that look like, you know, I've heard this before. Uh -oh. And, you know, he wasn't a very emotional guy other than just, he just stood up and he pulled at the waist of his pants and patted me on the head and walked in the house and didn't come back out. Wow. And I remember standing on the porch looking through the door and, I just looked at him go down the hallway and um I knew that was I knew there was something weird about that. Couldn't quite figure it out. Um you know there's a saying that you don't miss something you've never had but that's not true. You actually no, do miss every something. every child who who misses who does not have a parent miss wants that yeah. wants to know. There's a yearning. There's yep. a there's a hole inside. Yep. The the interesting thing there is and I we want to hear the song is uh I, I think the specificity of that story, it, it, it seems like that's played in your, it, it's like as if you, if it played differently and it became like a sleepover and that you played a game with them or cards and it was fun all night, even though that didn't happen, the, the specific moment from even leaning over to the car, to the running down. Mm. You know, um, when I got to Nashville, I mean, I had obviously had a, a, a load of ideas lots of stories, things that I want to write about because I, I just knew that there were other people out there, especially these kids growing up the same way, and I felt like, man, this could be an opportunity for me to tell my story to help them. And Don Sampson and I sat down. He's a songwriter in town, and I told him this story and shared the idea. I had this idea called I Love You This Much, and, and um, <clears throat> excuse me, after we had written the song, I didn't want to record it because I, I I felt like maybe, maybe I just got kind of got it out of my system and was ready to move on. And um, they didn't. This co-writer didn't stop there. He made sure the record label heard it, and um, when they heard it, they made me made me record it. And I'm so glad. And we're so did. glad they did. <laughs> I'm glad they did. And um, it was a couple years ago that Coca-Cola actually. Um, put this song title on all their cans and bottles and distributed all over the world. It was 
it was a, I guess, a last-ditch hope, if you will, that maybe my dad would walk in a convenience store and, you know, see that song title on a, a can of Coke or something, and hopefully it would turn him around. But it, he, it hadn't turned him around. <laughs> Can't remember the times that he thought Does my daddy love me? Probably not But that didn't stop him from wishing that he did Didn't keep him from wanting or worshiping him Guesses he saw him about once a year He can still feel the way he felt Standing in tears Stretching his arms out as far as they'd go And whispering, Daddy, I want you to know I love you this much I'm waiting on you to make up your mind Do you love me too? However long it takes I'm never giving up No matter what I love you this much Always one of your best songs. And the fans love it too, don't they? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't, a, your mom had her own issues yeah. uh, after you know, trying to be a single parent. When did it all start going south with her? What, what, <laughs> what was her, what precipitated you winding up with actually no parents? For I think her? it was, it happened after her mom passed when she was, uh, my, my mom was 17. I think, um, Losing her mom was probably, um, it broke her heart, I, I think, you know. And um, <clears throat> she ended up, uh, she was married young, he was abusive, and then she was around all kinds of guys all the time that were just abusive men. Mm-hmm. And um, over a period of time, I guess years of that, the amount of abuse that she endured, um, in some way she would just... I don't know if it was a, I, I, I don't know what it was that she, or what, how she was feeling. I just know that her backstory was a lot of abuse, a lot of emotional and physical abuse. And, you know, so, you know, as a kid, um, man, I, I remember so many scenarios of, of just abuse and just, I remember, uh, you know, I, I, I never liked, especially this Today, I mean, this t- day and time, I don't like to to talk bad about my mom or to say things bad about her that's going to really, you know. We are who we are. Yeah. You know, you just, what's water under the bridge is what yeah. they say, you know. I mean, because today we have a great relationship, but back then, I mean, it was really hard. And I remember one scenario where, you know, for a solid month, I would sleep on the couch because we lived in a very small trailer and wasn't wasn't an extra weren't an extra bedroom 
And uh, and for some reason, my mom got this got into a habit of just waiting till I went to bed, and when the lights were out, that she'd just come in there and and start punching me in the face. Oh, and like laying on a couch, and she must have had a lot of rage, yeah. a lot of bottled up I rage. I don't know. I mean, I never, I never. I don't know. She was mad at you? No, she, she was, was just mad. She was just in, yeah. yeah, she was bottled up rage. Yeah. You know, why did she wind up in prison? Well, the second time she ended up in prison, she stabbed a guy mm-hmm. nearly, you know, nearly to death. And, you know, everything that she ever did was either to a man or about a man. <laughs> it was always... It sounds like a song there. Yeah, it was always, you know, just tons of uh, anger toward men. And um, I just happened to be one of them, mm. but um, that ended. I, you know, it it finally ended, and you know, by the time I was fourteen, I was out of the house and in the custody of the state. And from that point on, I never went back home. Summer of '85, that song that yeah. that kind of addresses that period of your life, oh, yeah. does it not? Absolutely. <laughs> um, probably this, you know, "I Love You This Much" is a very special song, and. I have a handful of those types of songs, and this song right here to me is just one of my all-time favorite songs I've ever written. And, uh... Mid-July, I was 12 years old Picking blackberries for a man down the road Two bucks a gallon seemed just fine But half a gallon later I was changing my mind See them blackberries grow in a thorny patch Won't be no money without thorns attached It's like those thorns were trying to say Son, there's got to be an easier way The message was so simple and so pure reason for the pain was to lead me to the cure I can still see Grandpa sitting there rolling his own from that old brown chair so I dried out some tomato leaves and rolled them with some marijuana seeds Sold each one up and down the block In the tree out back's where I kept my stock Grandpa finally caught on to me Then he cut him a switch right off that tree The message was so simple and so pure The reason for the pain Was to lead me to the cure so great you can make poetry out of your experiences. (laughs) I envy that. It's a wonderful form of therapy in a way. Oh, absolutely. When did it start, you writing poetry and songs? Sixth grade. My uh, sixth grade teacher, Miss Friday, um, she was one of the... What a great sixth grade teacher name. (laughs) (laughs) Monday through Friday. (laughs) And... um, I had Miss Friday twice. I was in sixth grade twice, and and um, she was a disciplinarian and a very tough t- 
teacher. She was one of the first African Americans to teach in the state of North Carolina, and she'd grown up in a very racially divided area, still is that way, and um, she'd already experienced a lot of hurt and pain. I mean, there was a time she tells a story about the Klan coming to her house and throwing something on their porch that caught their whole porch on fire, and it it was because her sister had won a homecoming queen or something. Wow. And they were just so mad. And, um, but miss, so I would go to school in the sixth grade. And of course I'd say things that I'd hear in the trailer park and, and every once in a while my brother would come around and, you know, he was just, he was, he was a bad dude, man. He just, <laughs> he's, you know, he's kind of got, he just the swastika tattoos and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And so he, he, he knew miss Friday was black and, um, he say he'd say say this to her, and, uh. and so I'd say it to her. Oh, yeah, and it was it was very hurtful. But Miss Friday, um, she she knew I needed someone to reach out to me because there was absolutely no one doing that. I mean, I was my mom was in prison, dad was gone, I was living with my granddad who just didn't care, and um, she did that. She reached out to me with a leather strap, hmm. and you know, a lot of people say I don't believe in that, but I'm not in prison because of her. Hmm. And she and she encouraged your writing. Absolutely. And you that, wrote stuff down. She got you right. She she that's where it all started. She said, "You just have so much anger in you. You need to you need to write your thoughts. Write them down on paper." And, and you know, it was I was like, "I don't want to do that." And she said, "You need a journal. I don't want a stupid journal." And I did. I finally started writing and that led to um writing poems and then, of course, I wanted to write rap songs, and that didn't work out, obviously, but I wrote um, a few country songs here and there, and then that evolved into a true love for writing just my story, which, to me, turned out to be country music. And, you know, that's, that's you, you, the music saved you. Absolutely, it saved me. My, I, I can tell you one time specifically when it, how it saved me was a friend of mine, um, Chris was his name, he called me. He's like, hey, man, I need you to go, go with me somewhere. And I was like, where? He said, just down the road. Just the tone of his voice told me that I, I just didn't need to be going anywhere with him. And I said, man, I'm going to stay here at the house and play my music, work on practice, you know, practice my guitar. And 30 minutes later, he's dead. Whoa. Yeah, they killed him. So when mom came back and tried, she remarries this bad <laughs> stepfather, right? Oh, yeah. So what's the story there? He was no good either. Yeah, he was. My mom had a. She, she could, could pick him. She could pick a bad dude. Let me tell you, <laughs> she ran with a lot of bad guys, and they just they loved my mom. My mom was, she's a sweet person, and you know, back in her younger years, was just she's just beautiful. And did he ever wind up in prison? No, he should have. Yeah, he should have. He well, what happened? Tell that story. He um, well, when my mom. Got out of prison. She married this guy that ended up shooting someone, and um, he took us on this long run from the law. And um, you know, when I was thirteen, they pulled into a parking lot and made me get out of the car, and they drove away. And they didn't come back. And um, that's when they left you at the bus station. Yeah, another state. Yeah, I was Whoa. thirteen. Had to. Oh, you weren't even in your own hometown. Oh no, no. It was he committed a crime and. North Carolina, and then we left North Carolina and drove west to toward uh, Oklahoma. And um, that's a long ways away. Oh yeah. So, well, we drove south 
to Texas and then back east to Pensacola, which is still a long way. I mean, especially if you're you're 13. I, I've never even been out of my hometown. You didn't have a dime to your name nope. either. Nope. Had no food, no money, no So now you're home. a homeless kid. Living outside, yeah. Whoa. And that is a circumstance that is unimaginable to a lot of people, but there are millions of children Absolutely. that if they're not actually homeless, might as well be. Yeah. As far as their abandonment emotionally. Absolutely. You know, and that's, you are to be applauded for taking those children under your wing. Well, I mean, I've, I just been, been there. there. <laughs> yeah. And I know what they're going through. And, you know, especially these, you know, it's being a boy, it's hard, but, you know, I can't imagine what it's like being a girl. And that just, to me, just really breaks my heart to know that there's girls out there going homeless. Um, they're already targets, if you will. Oh, they are. You know, Absolutely. Just, and now they got to deal with that. Right. It's so it says "Kerosene Kid" on your on your, <laughs> on your guitar. Oh yeah. <laughs> that's a song too, isn't it? Oh yeah, I love this song. It's a, you know, that song. Um, when I wrote it, I, there was a kid at my bus stop. Um, who got picked on a lot because he smelled like kerosene. Uh-huh. And kids, you know, called him kerosene kid. And then... Which you must have felt like kerosene kid. Well, I was because... When you were homeless. I didn't realize that I was actually one of those kerosene kids because when you smell like kerosene, you don't always smell it, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Everybody else does around you. But I'd see them pick on this guy. And, you know, when I finally got a record deal in Nashville, I thought, I'm going to write a song for that for that kid and for all the kerosene kids out there regardless if you're a you know used a kerosene heater or not it's it's just it's a song about where you come from and using your hard upbringings to not as a stumbling block but a stepping stone and and that's I'm here because of those stories mm-hmm. I know what's like Growing up poor, I remember that night Walking home from the store Stopping every few minutes Setting down that jug Blowing on my hands, trying to warm them up And seeing that other kid from my homeroom class In that nice warm car's hero pass And our eyes meeting like they sometimes did And reading my name on his lips Kerosene kid, don't let them get you down. Hold your head up and be proud. Kerosene kid, they don't understand everything that we've got is a gift. Kerosene kid. You're listening to Children of Song. I'm Robert Kilman, and we're visiting today with Jimmy Wayne, and with me is my producer Brad Newman. Visiting these great Nashville songwriters, You're, we talked about homeless children a minute ago, and and uh, you walk it like you talk it, literally walk it. Like you talk it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Tell us about the walk. Well, if you notice, I'm wearing tennis shoes because I can't wear boots anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> In 2010, I um, walked from Nashville to Phoenix, and it was a campaign to raise awareness for the plight of 30,000 children in foster care that are aging out into homelessness every single year in America. And, you know, I'm, like I said, I was one of those kids who grew up in the system. And um, my goal was simply just try to raise awareness to make people aware that they need help and also to, to try to encourage lawmakers to 
you know, extend foster care to age 21 at least in every state because believe it or not, when you, um, if you extend foster care, it saves money. And it wasn't until I presented those facts to, you know, the treasurer and, mm-hmm. and the senator and the House representative um, because it truly does come down to money. We can say it doesn't, but it really does because when I started talking about how much money it saves, that's when the door started opening. And, uh, Isn't that funny? Yeah, I was like, you know, we need to extend foster care. Well, it's probably going to cost too much. No, it's not. It's a $2.60 return on every dollar uh, spent on these kids. So why not help them now? Why is that? Why is it $2.60? How do you get to that number? Well, if you th- if you think about um, one out of four end up incarcerated within two years after they age out, well, that's a minimum of $27,000 a year uh, to spend on them in jail. Uh the dropout rate um, is huge. So, I mean, yeah, the welfare cost, I mean, it's just three additional years to transition into adulthood. We're not talking about, you know, we're talking about minimum resources. Just give them a little bit of help to, mm-hmm. so they can go to school and uh, get a job. Get a job. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's so cr- That's so crucial. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, In addition to music, the other thing that, turned your life around and so you actually did find love with this couple who took care of you mm-hmm. tell me about them and how they, yeah, they were how did they get into your life well um, at that point you were at your bleakest yeah i was completely at the bottom I'm, and um it was after i was left at that bus station in pensacola you know for the next three years i just was moved around and from home to group home to receiving home, foster home, detention center, you know, strangers' homes outside in abandoned trailers. And and it had gotten to the point where I would literally just, you know, I'd walk into a convenience store and just ask for food. Um, Hmm. I was just down. Mm -hmm. And um, I was going down the road one day on a bicycle and um, that I had borrowed. <laughs> I was going to return it. Didn't know when. Someday. Yeah, didn't know when. And uh, but I was looking for work because you know working is truly what saved what saved my life. I mean, I learned how to work as a young boy, and I think that that right there is the answer to most of our issues. Mm-hmm. You know, if we teach kids to work, you know, that's that's a survival tool. Period. And um, I had a work ethic, and I rolled into this parking lot of a wood shop and I saw this elderly man standing there cutting. He was cutting something at a bandsaw and just something said, go in and ask him if he has any work you can do. And I did. And he said, you need to ask the boss. And this little white haired lady turned around and looked me up and down. And, you know, despite the way I looked on the outside, because I was living outside, she asked me if I'd come back that afternoon and cut their grass. And I did. I ended up being their lawn boy for the remainder of that summer. And, Toward the end of the summer, she and she and her husband, I mean, she asked me, she said that, you know, Russell and I have been talking, wanting to know if you'd be interested in moving into our home. Now, I, I'd never shared my story with anyone because I felt like if people knew anything about me, they wouldn't want me to be around their, them you know, in their house because, I mean, who would want a foster kid that has that much baggage, mm-hmm. you know, hanging out at your house? Um, a lot of self-loathing, right? I mean, oh, these yeah. kids need to be propped up a little bit, yeah. too. Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, I knew this wasn't going to work because, you know, Russell was a military guy. He'd fought World War II. He'd earned a Purple Heart. He's a tough guy. You know, and I was a 16-year-old kid with long, long hair. And, you know, I just 
didn't respect men because they had already always abused the family. So I'd never developed that, you know, that kind of respect, if you will, for for the men that would come through our lives. And so yeah. meeting a man that had, was, had some integrity, I really didn't, I'd never met that before, and he did. But he was a tough, tough guy. He was, man, he was tough. And um, they let me stay in their home for six years. Wow. All through high school, right? Absolutely. And they, when they gave me a chance to go back to school, because I had quit school, I dropped out. Mm-hmm. And um, with their help and a, a guidance counselor named Cindy Ballard, I'll never forget it. You know, these individuals helped me, but they saw a kid helping himself too, you know, somebody that was working and w- wanting it really, I wanted it so bad, man. I, I was never waiting on someone to give me something. And, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with expecting, I mean, accepting help, but expecting help, there's everything wrong with that. Right. And, uh, so these little angels just fell. showed up and said, "Hey, mm-hmm. we're willing to help you." And and I went to high school. I never missed a single day of high school. Not, I mean, I was even there on senior skip day, the only one walking up and down. I mean, just, <laughs> I, was, I didn't miss it. And then they gave me a chance to go to college, and I went to a community college. Um, which, you know, before I went to the community college, when I was still in high school, I think the the one of the most important people I've ever met in my life was was a prisoner who um when I was in high school visited my school school on a think smart program and um you know he committed crimes and he was in there and he was like you know think smart don't be like me you'll end up in prison and, right and then he got a guitar and he started playing and he played a Christmas song and it was springtime and I thought, that's the strangest thing but man that song is good <laughs> and I was so inspired by him I mean, I was truly so inspired by him. I went that weekend and bought a guitar at a yard sale. It was my first guitar and that I bought. And um, I bought this guitar, and I called the prison. I was like, you've got to let me come over there and learn from this guy. And the warden had him on the phone, and he's like, we don't let people in here. We put people in here. <laughs> and I was like, but you don't understand. He came to my school, and I'm, you know, long story short, they, they said, okay, kid, one visit. You get to come in one time. So I went over there, and they... Went through the gates and all the sounds of prison, you know, to, yeah. you know, I've been there. Yeah. I it's hate just, that. It's I hate that feeling. Very eerie. And, and so I went through gate one, they searched me and I went out there and I met with this prisoner on the prison yard. And sure enough, the next week I called again. I said, like, yeah, let me come back. And <laughs> I wore them down and um, they would let me in every week to sit with this guy on the prison yard and just listen to him talk about music and play music. And, um, it's a very long story, but I'm trying to make it short. Um, he ended up getting out of prison, and we lost contact for 22 years, maybe. And I was standing at my kitchen sink, and it's not long ago, and I was like, I was thinking about Christmas music, huh. and I was like, man, why do we re-record great Christmas songs? That doesn't make any sense to me. Why don't we just play those old? Nat King Cole Christmas, you know what I mean? Just why? Because I can't have already been recorded. Yeah, I can't out sing this guy. You know, I can't. Add, I can't out. I can't do it better than that. So why don't, why don't we just leave him alone? Why don't we sing new Christmas songs like, you know, like that song that prisoner sang at my school? No one's ever sung that song. Why don't we just sing that song? And and then that got. I started thinking like, wonder where he's at right now. And um, I I just got on the computer and typed his name and about five pages 
showed up, popped up with his name. And I was like, man, I'm never going to find this guy. Because, I mean, there was that name from all over the world. It was too common, yeah. The first number I called was him. <sighs> the first one. It was the first one in the top left corner. And I said, Jody, this is Jimmy. And he recognized my voice. I recognized his. And he's like, man, I can't believe it's you. Can I call you back? I'm at work. He's whispering. I was like, well, that's a good sign. You're at work. <laughs> called me after work. And uh, we talked. And I was like, man, what what happened? you 20-something years. I mean, I haven't heard from you. Like, you truly, I mean, this guy was like the the person who inspired me to do what I'm doing today. I mean, he was my hero. And um, he said, man, I I got out of prison. I went to Nashville. I got a record deal on Asylum Records. <laughs> Kyle Lenning signed him. Wow. Yep. Who was it? Jody Hager. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He said, I got a publishing deal at Tree Publishing Company. They gave me a bonus, and I took the money and bought drugs. And oh. did, did not show up for the, you know, for the recordings. <coughs> he, um, I said, well, you know, what is your, like, what are you doing now? What was, what would be your, a dream come true, if you will? If you had, if you could just come back to, you know, whatever. He's like, I've always told my dad I'd like to play on the Opry show. And I hung up the phone, called him back, and I said, Jody, I have one slot. They're going to make me, they're going to let me sing two songs. December 22nd, a few days before Christmas. Do you think you can come to Nashville and I'll, play a song and I'll introduce you to come out and play that Christmas song you sang um, to my school when I was in the 12th grade. And he came to Nashville. He walked out on stage for the first time in his life. 58 years old, I think. I don't know how old he is, but he sang that Christmas song that inspired me to buy a guitar and do what I'm doing today. He sang it and got literally a, a grand standing ovation it went on forever and bill anderson was like come back out jody they're still standing he <laughs> i went, love this story he went back out and did it again i mean they clap and wouldn't quit clapping for this guy i love this story. and you know if i could play the song better than him i, I don't even i like to hear a little well it's just one of those songs it's, it's on my phone <laughs> it's a song called for days like this and um it's talking about being in prison on christmas and Basically, he was born for days like this, for those who are and aren't missed. Wouldn't you know him, the first white Christmas in years? Would find me in a prison, thinking about you and crying half-frozen tears. Play me something that, that was one of your first songwriting efforts. I mean, <laughs> when the guitar comes into your life, you've already got the poetry in you. It must yeah. have been a short step to quickly start marrying the two. Wow. Well, the first song I learned on the guitar when I got to Nashville was a song I didn't write. A song I fell in love with, though. I think I know what this is. <laughs> <laughs> Baby hair With the woman's eyes I can feel you watching In the night 
all along with me. Oh, waiting for the sunlight. When I feel cold, you warm me, yes you do, feel I can't go on, you come and hold me, it's you and me forever, Sarah, smile, oh yeah, yeah, won't you smile a while for me, Sarah. That song got me a, a record deal, and you know I ended up recording it with Hall and Oates. I was going to say you got to meet the Hot Rock and Roll Hall of Famers who originated it. <laughs> that was an amazing experience, and you know I think if anyone could ever write a book about artist etiquette, um, it would be John Oates. He's probably the nicest superstar I've ever met. He is in my a good life. guy. I've yeah. met him too. He is a good guy. So nice to everybody. You can never pay for a meal around him. He's like, come on, let me pay for it. Like, no. <laughs> Tell me about Do You Believe Me Now? That was your that was your most recent number one hit. Yeah. Um, yeah. You I didn't write that. I did not write that song. And a guy named Joe West, Dave Pahanish, and Tim Johnson are the writers on that song. And um, a guy named Cole Wright called me and says, hey, I got a writer, a couple of writers I want you to write with. Will you write with them? They're new to town. They've been here about two years. And that's new. <laughs> right. In Nashville, that is. It's definitely new. <clears throat> and um, I showed up at the studio, and it was the old RCA building where Elvis recorded, and, you know, uh, um, a lot of history there. And um, went in, and I sat down with them, and we didn't even write our names. I mean, we were stuck. We couldn't think of an idea to write about. We couldn't, we could not come up with anything to write. And um, on the way out of the studio, it was about 4.30, um, Joe, the the producer, he turned around. He says, "Man, he said, Jimmy, um, it's good meeting you and everything. I know we didn't write anything, but do you have a couple more minutes that maybe you could listen to a song that we've written?" And I was like, and this memory came to mind of when I moved to Nashville, and I was only in Nashville a year, and I was writing for Acuff Rose Publishing Company, which was the old Opryland Music Group right. publishing company. And um, everyone there had told me, stay out of Skip Ewan's way. Because we wrote, we shared rooms, but mm-hmm. um, he's our, you know, he's the he's our number one writer. Don't bother him. And, and I was just really starstruck because I'd remember seeing Skip play on the Crook and Chase show years earlier. Right. And I sat in the floor at B's house and I thought, man, I wonder what it would be like to write a song with that guy. And there I was, sitting. I mean, in the signed to the same publishing company he was signed at. It was just so weird. And then one day, um, he came out of his writing room and went to the bathroom. And he came back out, and I kind of got in front of him. I said, "Man, I've got a song idea. You got to hear." <laughs> it was completely against the rules. They'd already told me, "Don't do that. Don't do that." Mm-hmm. And I said, "Man, I've got this idea. You got to hear it." And he looked at me and he said, "Okay, come in here." And he listened to my idea, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, that's as strong as a new piece of rope. And <laughs> and then he slammed the door, 
And I'm sitting there behind the piano, which I don't play. It was like I was so uncomfortable. I was sitting behind this piano. And he went over and sat on the couch. And he said, just write. Don't talk. Just write. And I was like, okay. And two hours goes by, and we had written a song. And um, it was a song called Put Your Hand on Mine. Put Your Hand in Mine, which Tracy Bird ended up recording. And it went up the Billboard charts to number nine, mm-hmm. paid off the Honda Civic and everything. It was unbelievable. But I remember that experience. And So when somebody says, will you listen to my you song? listen to my song, I say, yes. And then it, the song started with, do you remember? Boom. And it, music thing, I was like, that's not going to work. <laughs> They're not going to play that on the radio. And um, I grabbed a guitar, and I said, Joe, what if, what if it did something like... gives the DJ a few minutes to talk and they want about 11 seconds and then he said will you do it again I said sure and he put a microphone up and I said I don't even know where that came from and that's what you hear on the record it was the do you remember the day I turned to you and said I didn't like the way he was looking at you yeah, made you laugh. You just couldn't get what I was saying. It was my imagination. <laughs> so, do you believe me now? Guess I really wasn't that crazy. I knew what I was talking about. Sorry. Um, I am totally playing the wrong chords here. Let me. This is real live right here, you guys. This is real live. Uh, I can't for some reason figure out where that. Every time the sun goes down, he's the one that's holding you, baby. Me missing you way across town. Do you believe me now? Jimmy Wayne, folks, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. You are such a good guitar player, man. I'm so <laughs> well, I don't glad know, Beck. I kept hitting that. It's That's wonderful. not the chord. It's wonderful to be sitting this close to you for a change and seeing how good you really are. <laughs> I appreciate that. You know, I, I played catch-up when I moved to Nashville. I didn't play and sing at the same time. Now, I, granted, I had a guitar, but I didn't know what I was getting into. When I got here, I realized that everyone played, and they played very well, and they wrote well, and gosh, I, I just, I practiced for three years solid. Never went outside unless I went to the grocery store, to the gym or the publishing company, and I wanted it so bad, and that's truly what it takes. If you really want it, you have, you've got to put everything into it. And um, and look what happened for you. I am so proud yep. of you. Thank, Thank you, you, sir. Thank, Thank you, you guys so very much. Before we let you go, we'd like to welcome you to the B-Side. The producer's notes. When Jimmy was walking across America, the kids he was walking for were about to age out of foster care. Since then, he's made it his mission to keep kids in the system until they're 21. Recently, he pleaded his case to legislators in the North Carolina Assembly, and thanks to his efforts and his inspiring story, the state recently passed a bill extending foster care and benefits to homeless kids until they're 21. Next week, 
The daughter of country music legend Johnny Lee joins us. Cherish Lee talks about growing up with her famous parents. Her mama is actress Charlene Tilton of Dallas fame. We hear all about how Cherish Lee grew up playing music at 18 on a Martin guitar daddy gave her, one that she promptly decorated with glitter nail polish. Cherish Lee's got plenty of personality and all of it on display on the next Children of Song, the podcast that combines live music with great storytelling. Till next time, I'm Brad Newman. Thanks for listening. Guy Benson, join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.